We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm through. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are things? Roth, you are not going to be with us next week because you're going, oh my God. Is it already time for main talk? We're already talking about main. You're going yeah, to- we're going we're gonna to do some main chat. We do have a, a guest on the podcast, but Drew and I are going to do, uh, we're just going to do our uh, lobster roll Mount Rushmore. We're going to run them down wearing the, wearing the pantheon. <laughs> you got to go Noonan's. You have to go to Noonan's. Otherwise. We're going, yeah, I'm just going up for a little bit, but I am going to be taking a one week break from doing the podcast. So when I come back, I'm going to be so interesting because I'll have all of this stuff saved up. If I go to Maine and I go to a lobster place, it has to be called a lobster pound. Yeah. If it's not, if it's just, oh, lobster, like restaurant, fuck you, man. You better yeah. be a pound. You better oh, like, a you better have napkin? the, yeah, the, the town lobster <laughs> catcher better like be running around catching stray lobsters and then throwing them into my belly because that'd be delicious. Yep. But you know, the truth is you might be in a bit of danger, Roth, because I don't know about your air quality, among other things in Maine and here to talk about that. With us this week is best-selling author John Valiant. He's the author of The Golden Spruce, The Tiger, and the novel The Jaguar's Children. His latest book is Fireweather, a true story from a hotter world. And it's out right now, and we're going to talk about that book today. Hi, John. Hi. Hey, good morning. So uh, who are your guys? What are your lobster rolls? Where, Don't, like, what, what are we eating? Wait, this is like this is like a real guest, Roth. We have to I like, know. I'll be we have normal. To not I'll be, be stupid around John. John, uh, Fireweather Chronicles, a 2016 wildfire that essentially destroyed the city of Fort McMurray, which is the fourth largest city in Alberta, Canada, and a city that exists entirely for the sake of mining bitumen sand out of the earth. Bitumen sand is something that is used to they extract petroleum from it and of course make crude oil gasoline, blah, blah, blah. Now, not only was this fire historically destructive, but it behaved in ways that up until then, fire had never behaved before in modern history. Is that accurate to say, John? It's, you know, a fire scientist would quibble for sure. And there have been some really, really intense fires. But what it was a a really good example of, a really devastating example of, is how fire has changed uh, in the 21st century. And so what we're seeing and really saw uh, up front, uh, up close and personal in Fort McMurray was how fire is able to spread and burn with greater intensity, especially in the built environment um, in the past decade or two. We've really seen some potent changes that are really alarming. Could you tell us how it has managed to burn faster and why? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Fort McMurray, Alberta, uh, in addition to being the fourth largest city in Alberta, is also the fourth largest city in the entire North American subarctic. So that's including Edmonton, Alberta, Anchorage, Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska, and then comes uh, Fort McMurray, which is a place a lot of people have never heard of because it is a boom town and it really doubled in size over the past 15 or 20 years. It is the source of 90% of um, Canada's petroleum exports, and it's the United States' biggest source of foreign imports. So 90% of that oil comes out of Fort McMurray as bitumen feedstock, which is a really gnarly, tarry substance that requires inconceivable amounts of natural gas to melt down, process, render, and turn into something that one of the Koch brothers refineries can process on the U.S. border, uh, Pine Bend, Minnesota being one of the big ones. But uh, on May 3rd, 2016, we had um, temperatures that were close to 30 degrees above normal in the boreal forest, which is the, that huge, big green swath of forest that goes all the way across North America, across the top of Canada, Alaska, wraps around, goes across Russia in the form of the Taiga Forest, all the way through Norway, and back around again. That's called the Boreal Forest. In the middle of this, 600 miles north of the U.S. border is Fort McMurray, Alberta, surrounded by these vast bitumen mines that are truly vast. Like We're talking 1,000 square miles of disturbed, destroyed earth. So on May 3rd, 2016, instead of being about 65 degrees, which is normal for the northern boreal in early May, it was over 90 degrees. Instead of 25, 30% relative humidity, kind of a nice, dry, pleasant atmosphere. It was 11%. 11% is drier than Death Valley, which is 2,000 miles south. That so sounds bad. You those conditions, you have super heat, you have incredible dryness, you have a big wildfire on, on the outside of town, 
And then you got a wind blowing in the wrong direction. And that fire that had been burning for a couple of days, kind of lurking on the outside of town, the wind changed and it swept into town at lunchtime. Uh, and by seven that evening, it had forced the largest, fastest evacuation due to wildfire in modern times. I know that there's no way to really prepare for something on the scale and scope of this. And it's one of the sort of threads to this is that the town was not prepared for it, that people like didn't get warned about the fire before they like saw it on their street and stuff. I, you know, obviously the the more global question of not preparing for this, because this is not a thing that you can necessarily, it's not like, you know, whatever, you can make a plan for what happens when something like the strength of Hiroshima hits your town. Like there's not like you don't get under your desk when that's happening. You know, like there's there's more that, you know, can be done institutionally than individually. What would like I mean, in terms of how Fort McMurray responded to this, like, is there any lesson there in terms of not, you know, like what you should do in your own home? But like, how did humans respond to something that was of this like incredible inhuman scale and destruction. There, there's a there are a bunch of lessons, and that's really what inspired me to wrote, write the book. Because back in 2016, when I saw what was happening up there, I was not there personally at the, at that when the fire came through, but that what it did was so shocking, and the response was so frankly inadequate um, that uh, I wanted to understand that because I could see that this was setting an example on a planetary scale. This is where we were getting to see how humans responded to uh, major climate change-induced disaster in real time. And I thought it would behoove us uh, to understand, you know, what some of the shortcomings might be. Um, I mean, the first thing you would do, and that they're doing now, because there are massive fires burning all across Canada right now, literally, as you and I are speaking to each yeah. other. I know. I was, I was breathing and, them in New York a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, no, and my, my condolences. And uh, we've, uh, we've, uh, we've been there out here. We've also worn the uh, worst air in the world crown for a few days, uh, actually weeks, uh, a couple of years ago. And it's really no fun. Um, so uh, first thing you do is you evacuate the day before. And they had the forecast. I mean, this is the thing about climate change. The forecasters are excellent. The climate scientists were, have been predicting this literally since the 1950s. It has been documented. It's been reported on. It's been spoken about ad nauseum at the very highest levels of government and industry. They know. They know. In the oil industry, too. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, they absolutely know. And But here's the thing is... And, and I really ran across this over and over again, that you can tell people something. You can tell them how intense it's going to be, how bad it's going to be. And if they haven't experienced it personally, if they don't have some kind of visceral prior understanding, it's very hard for them to take those warnings seriously. And we saw that in the in the blizzard uh, in Buffalo last January. Um, you know, they... 50 people died, and even though uh, meteorologists said this is going to be a life-threatening storm, and I think the authorities in Buffalo thought, hey, we know blizzards, you know, we're, we're from Buffalo, don't tell we're us. Buffalo, and, yeah. yeah. We're Buffalo, and, uh, and in fact, it was worse than they could have imagined, and that's similarly in Fort McMurray, when that fire came in, boreal fires are historically huge. It's It's way bigger than anything we have down south. And so, you know, a thousand square mile fire is not a particularly big deal, but it is a big deal when there's a city in the way. Right, when it's you stick a fucking degrees. town in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, you put a city in the middle and um, and then you try to fight that fire using 1990s methods. And, and what 21st century fire does, because we have superheated the atmosphere with CO2 and methane, We've created a situation where temperatures are able to get higher. And when you have higher temperatures, you have evaporation. You know, put your laundry out on a sunny, windy day, and it's going to dry in 20 minutes. You put it out on a soggy, rainy day, and it's going to be wet tomorrow. So the forest isn't that different than our laundry in that respect. And so if you crank the temperature up over 90, drop the humidity down to 10%, you're going to have a tinder dry situation where fire that might 
under other circumstances, kind of march slowly through the forest, it's going to race through the forest. And the way the forest behaved on May 3rd, and literally for days and weeks afterward, it's like someone had sprayed gasoline on it. It exploded. It exploded. And what what a big wildfire does, and we're talking about a system that is literally miles wide, it's like a wave of fire coming over your town. It projects radiant heat, and radiant heat, the heat you'd feel when you put your hand up close to a candle, that moves at the speed of light. And so it's instantly projecting outward. And the, and the heat coming off of that fire on May 3rd was about 900 or 1,000 degrees. So it didn't matter how wet anything in front of it was. It would dry instantaneously and basically be way beyond combustion temperatures even before the fire arrived. So when the fire arrived, the houses did not catch on fire. They exploded into flame and burnt down in five minutes. And no one had ever seen yeah, like they vaporized. They turned entirely to gas almost. They, right? uh, they could, they, yeah, they became combustible in total immediately. And so firefighters were seeing things, you know, that they'd never seen before. Most of us have seen a house fire, unfortunately. And there's always a lot of house left. It takes a long time. The house is usually destroyed by the fire hose water anyway. But that's not what happened here. These, these firefighters were describing to me houses that were going from unengaged by fire to burning in the basement in five minutes and they couldn't believe their eyes and i couldn't believe them either i thought guys you know you're you're adrenalized you're exaggerating you know you're you're in shock whatever and i i kept asking and then i started to look at the physics and chemistry of it and it's totally possible well the other thing was that you were talking about i remember reading this in the book that that radiant heat was so extreme and the flames themselves were so hot that when firefighters trained their hoses on the fire, well, the water evaporated before it even reached the flames. It was utterly worthless. It, it, you know what's amazing is I think, it, in, in fact, that superheated steam, so the, so the water comes in as a solid, as a liquid, the heat vaporizes it immediately, and it also expands. And so, I, you know, this is, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this, but they were, there was a lot of water going into that fire expanding immediately. So think about the way steam kind of explodes out of a pot and it can really burn you. Well, think of thousands upon thousands of gallons of that going up into the smoke column, actually energizing the smoke column. And so what you got over Fort McMurray was called, uh, is what's called a pyrocumulonimbus cloud. And this is a gigantic fireborne storm system that punctures the stratosphere. The one over Fort McMurray was about 45,000 feet tall. It was so energetic that it turned the same way a hurricane does. It produced its own lightning. It produced black hail, which was all that was left of the trees and houses that had burned moments earlier. And it becomes almost a kind of perpetual motion machine, uh, enabling the fire to effectively sustain itself for as long as there's fuel. And that is literally what's happening right now in Northern Canada, in British Columbia, in Alberta, in Quebec, in Ontario. There are these gigantic firestorm systems working their way across the landscape. And there's about three or four months of fire season left. Is Canada any better prepared now to deal with these fires than they were seven years ago? Because judging by the smoke that I had outside my window a couple of times last month, it would seem to be the answer is no. I mean, the smoke, there's nothing you, you, you can't put out a boreal fire. And, and in fact, honestly, Drew, you shouldn't. It, it's the thing about the boreal fire, about the boreal forest system is it's a fire dependent system. So it, it's designed, if you will, it evolved to burn down on a regular basis because there are tree species in there, including black spruce, whose cones will not open unless they're heated to temperatures beyond what sunlight can achieve on its own. So they they have to reach fire temperature to pop the cones open and release the seeds. And what that tells the seeds is, okay, now the ground is clear for me, the canopy is open, so I've got access to sunshine and, and free soil. Now it's my turn to grow, my turn to shine. You're saying and that so, the trees evolve to burn, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so black spruce is incredibly flammable. Think about a dry Christmas tree. I mean, those are serious fire hazards. Well, you take hundreds of thousands of those, 
plant them around the city of Fort McMurray, make them 50 feet high, and again, you know, raise the temperature over 90 degrees and set them on fire, you're going to have 100,000, 500,000 firebombs all uh, descending on your um, your living space. And uh, that's there's no way to compete with that or, or combat that. So evacuation in a timely, orderly fashion is the only thing you can do. And so that is what we're seeing now in all these, you know, much smaller communities in northern Canada are preemptive evacuations, which are disrupt disruptive and inconvenient and really difficult for people. But escaping through fire, if you look in, in fire weather in, in the photo section that's included there, there are photos there of people fleeing the flames and you can't believe they made it out alive. And so these are folks, they've got their families with them. They got their pets with them. They literally don't know where the flames end. It's totally traumatizing for people. And so there are thousands of people now from Fort McMurray and elsewhere who have PTSD because of these really uh, heart-stopping last-minute evacuation scenarios, which are avoidable. What was the population of Fort McMurray at the time of the fire? The permanent population was, you know, 65, 70,000. But because of this massive uh, bitumen processing industry, there are literally tens of thousands of additional workers brought in. I mean, it's real. you know, you think of Williston and North Dakota. This is, you know, 10, 20, 30 times bigger than that. It's a massive petroleum boom town. And it goes 24-7, 365. And... Uh, so on top of all the, the permanent residents, you have another 30 or 40,000 uh, of what's called a shadow population. And they're living in work camps scattered all around the, the wilderness, around these uh, sagdi mining sites or these excavation sites uh, that are, again, just so big that you really can only appreciate them from a, a satellite's view. You can see the bitumen industry of northern Alberta from 6,000 miles up in space. And you can't see Shanghai from there. You can't see LA from there. You cannot see the Mississippi River from there, but you can see these mines. That's how big it is. Uh, I want to go back for a moment because when we were talking about the response to the fire initially, uh, the mayor of Fort McMurray at the time, Melissa Blake, her response to the the warnings of the fire were, and this is a cheap uh a cheap analogy, but it was very re reminiscent of the of the mayor and Jaws being like, ah, oh, we'll still have the parade on 4th of July, blah, blah, blah. We'll open the beaches and all that. And, she, and you know, she told the population, look, we'll, this will be all right. And normally, you know, if I'm watching that happen in Jaws, I'm like, oh, that person's a moron. Yeah, right. This is a that's, villain. That's yeah. asshole coded behavior. But what right, we were talking right. about earlier was what you refer to in the book as something called the Lucretius problem which yeah. posits that people assume that the worst thing that they've seen is the worst thing that can happen. So all they right. can fathom is what they've already experienced. So right. the people bearing witness to the Fort McMurray fire were paralyzed, even in warning, because they were literally unable to comprehend it. Yeah. So, you know, when that happens here, and it's happened here on the, on the West Coast of the United States, obviously, it's going to happen here. They forecasted for the Midwest this year. Would... We'd Michigan. be able to comprehend such a fire if we saw one. Is there any way for us to mitigate the effect of the Lucretius problem in advance, or do we have to live through it first before we can figure out how to do anything about it? Drew, th this is a this is a hundred billion dollar question uh, because climate change, almost by definition, is going to be showing us things we have never seen before. So Nova Scotia which, as you may know, is where fog is made. You know, it's a tiny, damp little province in eastern Canada. Right. They had Alberta-sized fires uh, just a, a month ago, and they were in shock. They were totally unprepared for it. I was unprepared for it, and I've been studying this subject for years now. But no one believed Nova Scotia, again, the land of fog and rain could burn like Alberta, but it did a month ago, right in front of everybody's face. There was a lot of property loss and a lot of really devastated firefighters who could not do their job because it was just too big for them to handle. So your question is, is a really important one because these folks, Melissa Blake included, these are earnest, caring people who really want the best for their community. They are not villains. They are not evil. They're not compromised. They don't understand what 
uh, is coming before them, who should have understood, frankly, uh, are the forestry side. You know, the uh, wildfire manager Schmidt, uh, he had seen stuff like this before. And um, I think he could have stepped up a bit. And, you know, that's not my job. You know, that's Alberta's job to figure that out. But uh, he's been promoted since then, which is interesting. Um, but for the rest of us, seeing these things, and you could see New York responding to the wildfire smoke. We've all had that out West. We've had it in Vancouver. We've had it in LA. We've had it in San Francisco and Seattle. And then you see New York and all of a sudden it becomes real, you know, and it becomes real for the media, which is based mostly back East. Oh my gosh, this smoke is really bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did you hear yeah. about this? Do you know things we, slide on fire now? To, are, were yeah, you, so are you implying that thing. we were annoying about that whole thing? Because I thought we handled it in a pretty cool but, way. But so you got the tiniest glimpse of how climate scientists have been feeling for the past 40 or 50 years. We've been trying to tell you. And so what do we have to do to make you act in a meaningful way on this information that we know to be true? And so it really takes, I think it really comes down to leadership and it comes down to, and so again, another reason I wrote the book is so that other firefighters and fire chiefs and mayors and citizens could see this is what happens. This is exactly the thought process people go through when a, a disaster bigger than they can imagine is forecast, predicted, and then arrives on schedule in in your community. This is these are this is these are the steps you're going to go through. First, you're going to try to fight it like you used to fight stuff. You're going to do the same thing you always did, and then there's going to be a terrible moment, just like in Fort McMurray, when you realize, oh my gosh, we can't stop the fire. How do we? keep the death toll as low as possible. It's that quick. It goes from, we're going to do this like we did it 10 years ago to, oh my God, how do we keep people from dying en masse? And that's- Run! You're like, it's, run! It's, it's, so it goes, it's really, um, it's kind of like uh, people going bankrupt. It happens very slowly and then it goes very quickly. Yep. And there's a, you know, a bunch of scenarios like that. Um, there are lots of medical analogies. And so it's really, um, I think, leadership and citizenry taking seriously the experience of their fellow humans, of their fellow citizens. Because these are, you know, in my case, in Fort McMurray's case, these were Canadians. You know, these weren't people in Bangladesh who you can't relate to because they live on the on another hemisphere, speak another language, and, and, and live in, in the tropics. These are folks living a life very recognizable to lots of other North Americans who have, you know, who, who look the same, act the same, speak the same, um, have very similar ambitions. And yet, um, even when the Fort McMurray fire happened, you could see the rest of us saying, wow, that's some weird thing that happened way up north. That's really too bad. And so there was a real outpouring of sympathy and Red Cross support, and they got great insurance payouts for their houses in general, probably the best anywhere ever in a North American disaster. But again, we we went, we protect our status quo so jealously and to the point that I think we really will delude ourselves. And, and I spent a lot of time on that in the book where people are still trying to live their old life, even when the fire is coming down the street a hundred feet tall incinerating everything in front of it. You still have people dealing with this cognitive dissonance of, but but my house, but my car, but right. my motorcycle, but the life that I worked really hard to create. And, and that's what we know. And that's what we're deeply invested in. And you could see, you know, the CEOs of Exxon and Shell are doing the same thing. They have this method that works for them. And it's crumbling. And it's very hard to accept that gracefully. It's so threatening. And I think it, it, it goes way beyond partisanship. It goes way beyond, you know, climate denial or, or any of these negative terms that we might associate with it. I really think there's something about our species that doesn't want to let go of the life we're living, especially when it's working for us. And it's working pretty well for uh, folks in Fort McMurray and for the CEOs of, of Shell and Exxon. And, and they but don't want to- Right. Yeah, it's it's rolling. 
And so you're not going to give that up without a fight. And, you know, just imagine if somebody said, you've got to evacuate, you know, you guys live in these nice houses. I live in a nice house. If someone said, you've got to evacuate in six hours, um, because your house might burn down or it might flood out like my my mother in Vermont, you know, almost had to evacuate literally yesterday because of those massive floods in Vermont. So uh, a lot of people are going to want to stay. And, you, you know, you see that even in, in Ukraine, you know, they're they're being bombed daily and, and they don't want to leave. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But a long winded way of saying that there's this real kind of cognitive and psychological barrier that that we need to address and acknowledge, uh, acknowledge and address rather, um, uh, around the Lucretius problem and this notion that my idea of what an extreme baseline is, is something I've already seen rather than something that I literally can't imagine. And I'm going to have to take it on faith from somebody else that it's actually this bad. And I need to respond in this way that I'm not used to responding. And that's a real, uh, significant challenge to literally the next century. Yeah, that seems that seems like the macro scale challenge of climate change in general. And it's like a tautology, but the limits of our imagination are the limits of our imagination. And if you haven't seen it, or even if you've only seen it on TV, I mean, this is the part that I've always been kind of fascinated by as but like David Wallace Wells gave a very nice blurb to your book, wrote, has written brilliantly about this stuff, about like what climate change will actually feel like, what it will be like and how it will be experienced. And it is like reading science fiction, you know, that is describing conditions that obviously like I've never experienced, but that like also that people haven't experienced, you know, in the history of life on Earth. And it's very scary. And yet there's because of the fact that it is unprecedented and because of the fact that it is so far outside of my experience of, you know, like you said, like being in a, I wouldn't say it's nice, but we do have air conditioning in an apartment in a city. The, the abstraction kind of keeps you from getting your hands around it um, in a way that like, this is the part where I, I always want when I read about stuff like this, there's like there's leadership in the sense that like there's better forestry practices that might limit wildfires. And then there's also, you know, but like what would dealing with this actually look like in terms of, of I mean, this is like a broad question for you. And you can yeah. say, you know, we got to quit fossil fuels or X, Y, Z. But like <laughs> where would it go? Like what would you necessarily do beyond like taking these sort of, as you said, like acting with a little bit of forethought in terms of like managing whether or not this burns you to death or not, like in a well, broader again, sense, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think listening to experts would, would really help. And so there are these really earnest climate scientists and really hardworking meteorologists who have superb information and really good predictive technology and predictive abilities based on their own extensive experience. These folks really know, they really care, they are looking at the data. And to listen to what they say and respond appropriately would be uh, a, a really good start. Um, responding appropriately is, is a really interesting question. And one way to resolve that is to look at what insurance companies are doing. And right now in the state of California, State Farm, and um, there's another another big company. Uh, both of them have said, we are no longer going to insure new bills for fire in the state of California. That's one of the biggest economies in the world. For the entire million state. People. You're not just talking about like certain parts of LA or whatever. No, nope, we're not talking about just around Redding where they had a fire tornado in 2018. We're talking about the whole state. So that's one way of getting people to really snap to and focus and think, okay, so where can I build now? Where is a reasonable, safe place? What should I build my house out of now? Because the modern house has an astounding number of petroleum products. And when you're projecting forest fire temperatures, radiant heat of 900 degrees, 
into the built environment that is made of vinyl siding and tar shingles and vinyl windows and laminates and glues and polyurethane. That shit blew me away in the book where you were like, basically you go to sleep every night on petroleum products. And I was like, "Uh, do I? Wait, what? (laughs) I'm wearing petroleum products. Dude, look at the tag on your shirt. You know, it's, this stuff melts and at a certain temperature, it will explode into flame. And, you know, cotton doesn't do that so much. Uh, it needs to be at a much higher temperature. So in any case, the, and the, so what it, the, I mean, the petroleum industry in a way is at the root of all this. And I'm not saying that in a, you know, uh, conspiratorial or these guys are evil way, even though there are these kind of woke to me, John, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> a little bit of wokeism going on here. Mm. The extent to which petroleum products have, have infiltrated our lives and become part and parcel really of who we are is so extreme and so subtle, uh, that I think we really have trouble seeing it. And, and it literally took me five years of thinking about this to realize, wow, the, the petroleum industry, you know, that gives us our wealth, that gives us this incredible mobility that's enabled us to do extraordinary things uh, on a scale that no one's ever done them before and have a quality of life that no one has ever had before at, uh, uh, you know, in these kind of numbers. Uh, this industry is really it's not an energy industry, which is how it likes to present itself. It's a fire industry. And so the only reason we're interested in coal or oil or gas or bitumen is because it burns. It's all about the fire. And even, even the polyester shirt that I am not wearing uh, comes down to you know melting and heating petroleum products. And so this idea that we live in a fire-powered society when you think about it that way, it becomes less surprising that the world is now more flammable because there is no way to get away from CO2 if you're burning stuff. And if you've been burning stuff at the rate that we've been burning it for the past 150 years, you're going to have a lot of CO2 accumulation, and that's going to impact your environment. And one way it's done it is by making the whole planet more flammable. And so it raises us an interesting kind of metaphysical question is fire serving us? Is oil serving us? Or are we, homo sapiens, serving fire by creating an, an environment that makes it much easier for fire to burn more intensely and more broadly? And that's what we're seeing all around the world. Fires are burning where they've really never burnt before in human history. You know, they're burning on tundra, they're burning on Greenland. Greenland, last I checked, was a polar ice cap, but there are little shrubs and things that grow around the periphery for a few weeks each year. Well, a bunch of those caught on fire in 2017. So that's a first, you know, in who knows how long, hundreds of thousands of years, you know, since prior to the ice cap. So we're in a new world now that we created with the assistance, the willing assistance of the petroleum industry. And that is a reckoning that we have to address. Uh, we do have to take a break, but I, I want to talk more about the book with John. It'd be Valiant. so funny to just go immediately to breaking down like, I the National know. League East from here. No, I know, terrific. No, 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 we just have to take a quick break. Before we take a break, though, I do want to note that this podcast is sponsored by Exxon's new organic gasoline, made from 100% all-natural certified organic ingredients that you can feel good about feeding to both your car and to your children. That's Exxon Organic gasoline now available at artisanal gas stations all across north america we'll be right back with john valiant of fire weather for your health hey it's drew we're sponsored this week by bird dogs stretch khaki shorts designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg giving you a truly sculpted look Bird dogs fit much better than regular shorts that are made of stiff, restricting cotton. Bird dogs fix this issue by inventing cloud knit fabric that looks just like khaki but stretches so you get a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice movement. And I know this because I wear them on my bike. I uh, bike 10, 20 miles in bird dog shorts and I feel extremely comfortable, but I also, I look a little bit more put together than I would just in like the usual mesh shorts or whatever. Bird dogs also uses anti-stink sweat 
wicking fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day long. Their shorts also have a built-in liner, plus a zippered pocket for keys or credit cards. So go to birddogs.com slash distraction and enter the promo code distraction for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash distraction, promo code distraction for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. The Distraction is sponsored this week by Wild Grain. Craving fresh, delicious, easy meals? Try Wild Grain and get their bake-from-frozen sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisan pastries delivered right to your door. Wild Grain is the first-ever bake-from-frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisan pastries. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. All you have to do is pull it out of the freezer and pop it in the oven, and less than a half hour later, you have delicious bakery-quality food ready to eat in your home. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com slash distraction and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often you want to receive it. It's easy to schedule, reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash distraction to start your subscription. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash distraction. That's wildgrain.com slash distraction, or you can use promo code distraction at checkout. And we're back with John Valiant. Uh, we're talking about fire weather, about uh, the great fire that uh, essentially destroyed all of Fort McMurray in Canada. Well, I don't and know if call it great, Drew. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We it's love, really we love our fire people, fire. our beautiful wanna, fire people. Uh, we love it. You know, it's- so we're, we've been talking about how this fire, along with many others, was a clear byproduct of increased carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. Canada, uh, John Valiant, and Alberta in particular, which would appear to be the Texas of Canada— has a horrific track record when it comes to exploitation of natural resources, and it remains behind many other developed countries in weaning itself off of fossil fuels, or at least according to your book, that was the case, uh, at least when the when the Fort McMurray fire happened. Is that still true? And can I feel superior to Canada because of this? I don't think we can feel superior, especially Americans who produce more oil uh, than than anyone else on earth, uh, even Saudi Arabia, even Canada. But Canada is absolutely a contender. And Canada only has, you know, 39 million or so people in it. So considering how few people are there, our collective per capita impact on global CO2 is pretty spectacular. So we, you know, we could say that Canada is absolutely punching above its weight when it comes to, um, to CO2 and, and petroleum burning. And oh, the, the gold heart, for Canada. Could you yeah, no, it's, it's something. And, you know, this is, but, you know, it, it's, uh, um, it's complicated because oil has been this sort of fast track to wealth. And so many people in Alberta are not from Alberta. They've come from other truly depressed parts of Canada, the, the, the maritime provinces of Canada. So Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and Cape Breton, um, th- those places have very weak uh, and small economies. And there are a lot of people there living on welfare, a lot of people there with very limited options. And so when Junior can you know, get in his Pontiac Firefly and drive 2,500 kilometers or, or or more up to Fort McMurray in Alberta across the country and start pulling down 5,000 bucks a week, um, that's pretty compelling. And so as, as an engine of, of wealth for just the citizenry, it's been incredibly powerful. And so the, the, the median household income in Fort McMurray on the day that the fire rolled in there in 2016 uh, median household income was around two hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh shit! So this is not Marin County, you know. This is not Silicon Valley. This is six hundred miles north of the U.S. border, in the middle of the boreal forest. There are folks just like you and me, except we're driving giant dump trucks or uh, loaders or you know whatever we're doing, and we're pulling down spectacular uh, paychecks. And again, if, you know, if you never had money before, if you're, you grew up on welfare, how are you going to say no to that? And it's, it's, it's changed people's lives. 
not always in good ways. A lot of people found that money really hard to hold on to. But in Alberta, so much of the economy is built around petroleum that it's truly disloyal. Like, why would you bite the hand that fed you, right. that gave you everything you had? And so, so there really is, you know, it's very easy to kind of point fingers and, you know, uh, make judgments, but it really blows, you know, to be poor. And it really feels good to be able to finance yourself and 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 create a life for your kids and go home and say to your mom and dad, look, you know, I did it. And this helps explain the politics of Alberta, which I have been as a spectator, just sort of gawking at for years, because it seems like even beyond the whole like American idea that Canadians are somehow more reasonable than Americans, which is <laughs> not necessary. Yeah. I mean, whatever. That's a very low bar, but I also don't know that it's true. But I've been fascinated by like the Wexit movement. Oh, the yeah. like sort of oh, there's yeah. this. Re yeah. So Alberta has this incredibly reactionary undercurrent of politics, and beyond like being startled to see Canadians acting so weird, it, that income unlocks all of this because I think that that's where like it's you know, American reactionary conservative politics is basically grounded in that too, that it is, if it wasn't protecting a patently unsustainable and unjust standard of living, people wouldn't care as much. It would just be an abstraction. But in this case, it's like, all right, now I know, like basically that, like not just the fact that everybody knows that they're mortgaging the future of the planet so that they can make $200,000 a year and live in the middle of a boreal forest. But there is like, that would be why you would fight so hard. That's the part of it that like politically we were talking about before the break that makes this so difficult to sort of square in terms of trying to find a way to not even be optimistic, but to figure out what to hope for is that uh, at this point in the game, everybody has so much leveraged on like just in terms of their material comforts and the sort of broader world in which we live on it continuing to go on this way, even though uh, it is, as you've said, very eloquently and a little bit terrifyingly patently impossible that it could continue going on this way. Yeah, I, I, it's it was shocking to me, too, even though I've been in Canada now for 25 years. But I, I think, you know, to an easy shorthand way to understand it is think of the way NRA members feel about firearms and think about the lengths they're willing to go to preserve this this right that they feel they have. Just that's what petroleum is for conservative Albertans. That's how passionately they feel about it. And, it, and it, you feel militant and defensive and it's easy to get angry. And this is your right to take from the earth and prosper. And a, this evangelical Christianity really informs, well, it's, a, it's informed a lot of capitalism, but it really informs a lot of Albertans just as it does uh, a lot of Texans. Yeah, and so, a, lot of, a lot of dominionist stuff, like being like, yeah. oh, the Lord put this tar sand under my feet for me. Well, the, well, the other Ooh. thing, John, is that you Literally. don't have to be you don't have to be a reactionary to feel this way, like right, I'm, or to be invested in it. I'm That's as liberal. Totally as, good point. I'm as liberal as they come. My house runs on coal power. I haven't installed solar panels. I drive a car. I own two cars. I wear clothes made of petroleum byproducts, and you know, I am. How willing am I to give that up? If someone said to me, listen, Drew, you know, if you go live in a, a cave or like a, a log cabin in the forest and you don't do any of that stuff and you'll help us, you know, save the world, I don't know that I'm willing to do that. I really don't. I don't. So to me, it seems like the solution here, and this is like, this is the big stretch, is can you find something that gives people the comfort and prosperity that oil has given them throughout the industrial revolution um, that is not as actively harmful. So we're, you know, obviously we're going into alter, alternative fuel sources, but is it just alternative fuel sources? Is it a mix of things? Is there a potent, is there a realistic, and I'm not talking about, I hope someone inv inv invents cold fusion tomorrow or whatever the fuck, but is there a way to replace it without losing so many of frankly billions and trillions of dollars that we have provided ourselves by pulling the shit out of the earth and burning it. I mean, the 
and and Rob mentioned it earlier, we we have mortgaged the future in order to have this lifestyle. So it's an unrealistic, unsustainable lifestyle that strangely, surreally, we have become used to. And so people talk a lot, especially biologists, talk a lot about shifting baselines. And so you see three birds going by, hey, I saw a bunch of birds today. Well, in 1900, you know, your great-grandfather would have seen the sky go black with that same species of bird. But now there's so few of them. But when you see three of them, it's an event and you think it's a big deal. We have become used to this. I can have two cars. I can have this beautiful house. I can have all this amazing stuff. And I'm just a regular guy with a radio show, you know, and and. 200 years ago, you would have needed to be quite a prosperous person, probably with a lot of servants or a lot of slaves, uh, enslaved people, to have that lifestyle. And petroleum has stepped in and become our slave and has multiplied our power in this incredibly prosperous and exciting, energizing way, but that's also totally unsustainable. So, how we do this is, first of all, we have alternative energy sources that if, if we had started developing them back in the 70s uh, when they were known and when the risk to climate was also known, we would be in a very different place today. But what is still astonishing is the incredible rapidity with which the energy transition is unfolding. It is happening right now. It's happening at uh, you know, smartphones coming in in 2007 type speed where they weren't there and now they're there. And and it's going to be, it's going to take longer with uh, petroleum. We're not going to see petroleum go away, but we're going to see a shift in the ratio of where our energy comes from. But the other thing that has to go with that is a, is a revised expectation of what quality of life is, of what we quote unquote deserve. And to consume at the rate that we do, uh, and then transpose that across 8 billion people, assuming, well, everyone should have a right to this lovely lifestyle, um, the planet can't carry that. It simply can't. And so there's a way to meet our energy needs without uh, increasing CO2. Uh, but I don't know if there's a way for all of us to live in a McMansion and- right go on a cruise and have a couple of cars um, and do that. And so we, you know, capitalism, our, our political uh, leaders, our own ambitions and sense of entitlement have skewed our vision of what a reasonable person should have to, in order to live a good life. And that is, I mean, nature is going to revise that for us anyway because it will burn your house down and wash it away. And then you're going to be going and living with your parents or, or living with your friend in oh, some place that hasn't been afflicted yet. So, I mean, nature, nature will, will reset for us. And our job, again, this comes back to the Lucretius problem. Can we anticipate what nature is going to do and the ferocity with which that's going to unfold and act in a proactive, preemptive way? And part of that, one of one of those actions is to change our energy source from high high CO2 intensity, high fire intensity to low carbon intensity. But the other is to renegotiate our relationship to nature in a way that's more collaborative and more sensitive to its really profound needs and our profound dependence on it. And because uh, when that bridge washes out, you know, my mother doesn't have any water right now. And she lives in a beautiful, prosperous town in a beautiful lifestyle. And now she is carrying water like uh, any Ukrainian, you know, war uh, victim. Is that recalibration possible? Like realistically, because I'm, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, that it's it's not possible for all of us to have you know, the sort of the house and the car and, and that night, it can't, you know, you can't do that with 8 billion people on earth. But of course, there is more than a few people who are prosperous who do not give a fuck if everybody gets that. As so long as they have it, they're good. Yeah, no, I mean, I do think uh, selfishness is a virtue, you know, in some circles. And, and certainly uh, unbounded prosperity uh, is 
is something that people really, you know, uh, hold in very high regard. And there's a, how you, how you deal with that, I think is really, I, I feel like the municipal level, the mayor is, is where the action is. Because if you, like they're talking about with Manhattan, I think they've got one in London. If you have an entry, uh, uh, I forget what the, what the usage fee is called, but to, in order to drive your car into the city. Congestion pricing. Yeah, conge- thank you. Uh, so if you have, say, congestion pricing, that's going to force a change in behavior that's going to be multiplied by millions of times. And so instead of cars and trucks barreling into the city in a kind of mindless, reflexive way, because that's the way we always did it, people are going to be forced to rethink and take the train in, take the bus in, ride their bike in or not go in. And so that by through policy, you're going to change the in a measurable way, the amount of pollution that's generated by vehicles driving into that city. And also by the, you're also going to change the quality of life in that city. So that city is going to become a more desirable and healthy place to spend time and also engage in commerce. And so I feel like those are, those kinds of shifts um, have ripple effects in terms of forcing changes, which nobody likes, but people will adjust to pretty happily over time. Not even over that much time either. That's the part of it that like, this is a real, one of the few areas, I'm glad you brought it up, where I feel some sense of optimism. It hasn't happened in New York yet. We're still in the stage, you know, the uh, whatever, six months or a year of like extreme pissing and moaning from people with like Long Island accents about where they can and can't drive. Right. But when you've seen this happen in Europe, and again, I don't think Europeans are inherently more reasonable than Americans, although I I don't oh, think oh. they're less reasonable than <laughs> Americans. But it has like you see these cities where like they did it. Like yeah. Paris did it. Yeah. You know, Amsterdam did it. It's yeah. not like impossible. And people are happier. Like yeah. it can be done. Yeah. It's just hard, you know, in this moment, especially I think just being hyper aware in the way that, you know, it wasn't even possible to be hyper aware of things like 15 years ago. I was talking with friends about like how crazy it was that they banned smoking in bars in New York City. Yeah. Exactly. That's a normal thing. That's basic public health shit. And yet, like, isn't it hard to imagine, like, if they tried to do it today, how fucking stupid and superheated that discourse would be, and then it somehow wouldn't happen? Yeah. Well, because they still allow it in bars in Virginia, and if you try to do it in Virginia, good luck, brother. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, what's really interesting, going back to this idea of our our the jealous way, the the militant way that we will defend our status quo. What's amazing is we will even do it when it's against our best interests. And so, yep. you know, a lot of people were probably offended and incensed by the idea that, uh, you know, we can't have cigarettes in bars. Cause that's what, you know, when I went to bars as a young person, that's what they smelled like. That was oh, yeah. part of the vibe. You can a whole generation like that will cigarette. never know the experience of stepping under a shower head the day after having been in a bar and realizing that you smelled like an ashtray the entire time that you were asleep. Yeah. You know, your yeah. your pillow, your partner, I mean, everybody is oh. is contaminated by it. It's disgusting. And and so I think as we revise our relationship to cities, but we're again, you know, half of humanity is gonna be living. Uh if we can turn those into greener spaces that are more focused on human beings rather than on the machines that encase them, um, you know, we really can make the world better, you know, and and I feel like that's an easy win. That's pretty low hanging fruit, but it will have measurable effects on CO2, on pollution, on happiness, on social connectedness. Because, you know, when I'm inside a car inside that carapace, a different John Valiant comes out. Oh, yeah. You know, a much more aggressive and entitled and really, frankly, obnoxious person shows up. But when I'm on a bike or on foot, you know, I'm a lot more civil and a lot, frankly, happier. Um, So I walk everywhere now. And it's I'm you know, I'm a writer. I have time and I don't have a I have a different kind of schedule. But the fact is, I engage with my city and the citizens of that city in a totally different way now that makes me feel more a part of this place or invested in it, happier, freer. It's almost like being a kid again. I still get where I'm going. Uh, I just need to leave a little earlier. Well, the other thing is that it's not, you know, the same problem is there with phones where it's a tool to keep everyone else at arm's length. And, 
you know, you would think that, or I would have thought that when I saw footage of the McMurray fire on my phone, that that would give me a much better idea of what I'd be up against. But it's a phone. It's yeah. fucking, it's yeah. four it, inches long. It also, it mediates it, you know? It just becomes another thing that you're consuming on a screen, right? Like it turns it into fucking Roland Emmerich movies. Yeah. You just watched a cat video right before that, you know? And yeah. so it's all just kind of go washing over. And, um, you know, even when it was on a big TV screen, I mean, I really hearing what you're saying there, that having all this, this super abundance of information and instant information, a lot of which is accurate, it's still just inside this little box, you know, that's barely even a box. And again, this I think this really comes down to limitations in human cognition. We weren't made to be so well-informed. You know, we are parochial. We're, we're local. We're communal, clannish, small-scale, you know, valley, river-dweller types who, who live in a small sphere, you know, basically as far as we can walk. You know, that's what we evolved to. And suddenly now we can encompass and and theoretically hold you know multitudes of information from around the world some of which is so horrible but not very well like we don't digest it very well and so i think that you know i think a lot of it's just kind of bubbling over and spilling off and so that's a you know that's a a topic for another time but how do you decide what's meaningful and you know when fort mcmurray went across people's tv screens uh it looked really bad. You really felt for those people. Um, there were some really poignant interviews of people, you know, covered in ash and freaked out and kids crying. And, you know, you really wish that wouldn't happen to them. And you sure hope it doesn't happen to you. But who knows where Fort McMurray is anyway? And, you know, Vermont is equally remote for a lot of people, probably even in Brooklyn. And, uh, and yeah, you know, there's serious devastation, you know, just upriver from you. Right now, let me, uh, let me ask you one last question about uh, fire weather, and then we're gonna we're gonna subject you to a couple of stupid things. But um, <laughs> that wanted, hasn't happened yet, by the way. This has yeah. all been very normal. So oh, okay. uh, I want yeah, to ask so much you, I want to ask you how the McMurray fire compares to the wildfires that are currently engulfing Canada, and the ones that will come in future years. Can you give us an idea of that? And I, I don't mean that as a, I just mean the facts of it. Yeah. Um, the intensity with which Fort McMurray burned um, is nearly identical to what's happening right now in northern Canada. So you again, you have it's I mean, climate science, it ain't rocket science. When you make things hotter, you get more evaporation. When things are drier, when the ground is drier, when your house is drier, when your clothes are drier, they're going to catch on fire more easily. So that is. Uh, why I focused on Fort McMurray because I thought this is a bellwether fire. This is this is not an isolated event. This is a sign of what's coming. A first. Yeah, I mean, except if you talk to any fire scientist or anybody in California and Australia, they're saying, "Look, folks, you know, we've been trying to tell you since 2003. There, you know, there was a fire tornado in Canberra, Australia, in 2003. There was a fire tornado in Redding, California, in 2018." Um, but that was in Fort McMurray was 2016. Uh, we hadn't had the Tubbs fire yet, which was a devastating fire in, in uh, Northern California uh, outside of San Francisco. But the it was clear then to any fire scientist, to any forest hydrologist, to any climate scientist that these were coming and they had been saying these are going to be coming. And the power of Fort McMurray was it actually happened in a, in a sizable city. So you really got to see, okay, this is what it looks like. And this is how people respond. And this is how devastating it is. So it is absolutely a sign of things to come. Um, the only upside to these fires in Northern Canada is there aren't many cities in Northern Canada. That's where Fort McMurray was really kind of an anomaly. But the same thing could happen to Fairbanks. The same thing, frankly, could happen to to Vancouver. It could happen on Staten Island. You know, any place where you have a lot of trees and houses and wind and hot, dry temperatures, if you had a heat dome like we had in Vancouver in 2001, like Texas and and northern Mexico have been having kind of relentlessly for the past couple of weeks, that turns that makes that fire loves that. You know, it dries everything out even even more intensely. 
And so if you got a fire in there and you got an unfavorable wind, you could lose a spectacular amount of forest and property and potentially lives, again, in a startlingly short period of time, because one of the uh, indicators of 21st century fire, as I call it, is not just these huge pyrocumulonimbus firestorm systems that are 45,000 feet tall, but also the speed with which fire moves. And if you talk to anybody who's been through one of these 21st century fires, whether they're in Australia or Oregon or Alberta, they're all going to say, I can't believe how fast it moved. And even experienced firefighters will say, I can't believe how fast it moved. And so it is behaving in a fundamentally different way, even though, you know, the chemistry is the same. The forest is the same. The houses are the same. But when you heat stuff up and dry them out, fire is able to move with more intensity and speed. And that is a brutal fact of the 21st century. And that is not going away. That's only going to intensify. Well, here's a brutal fact for you, John. It's time for our guy of the week. Every week, we remember an athlete of your, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. Now, John... In honor of you, because I know you're, you're a tennis calling fan. it the greatest transition of all time. Yeah. And in honor, <laughs> in honor of Wimbledon, our guy of the week is Goran Ivanisevic. Do you remember that guy? Oh God, I wish I did. I actually know a few tennis players' names. I never heard of that guy. I'm so sorry, Drew. He was cool. He was it's a fine. big serve guy in the uh, big, 90s. Big serve. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like really a Berrettini. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 He was. <laughs> that, he he walked so that Berrettini could. I don't know, run. I don't know. It was in that Sampras era where everyone served a billion miles an hour and then ran to the net to volley. Wow. Yep. God. But that's like okay. A, a preppy six foot five guy wearing a backwards hat serving. Oh no. Oh no. Yeah. No, I, I, I try to keep my distance from those folks, but uh, well, I, I think honestly <laughs> you have, you have used your time in a much more wise fashion yeah. in the interim uh, than to watch enough Goran Ivanisevic to, to remember who he is. But <laughs> I'm going to challenge you even more by opening up the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers Instraction listeners, I'm only going to give you one, but it is about man's inhumanity to man, John, so you do know something about that. This is from Ryan. He writes, I was just on a cross-country flight, and about four hours in, the guy across the aisle from me started eating previously opened canned tuna fish out of a Ziploc bag. The smell made me get up and hang by the bathrooms for a while, hoping the flight attendants were on the phone with the authorities. Is there a grosser, lukewarm food for someone to force others to smell in an enclosed space? Thanks. I don't know. I don't know that there is. John, do you want to go first? Answer to that. The short answer is no. Uh, yeah. It's really, that is, um, uh, you know, besides certain kinds of uh, um, stinking bishop cheese uh, right. is Ooh. a particularly uh, fragrant and flagrant cheese that. Some camembert. You know, <laughs> there are sorry. actual rules. There are a couple of rules on some, in some airports. Uh, in Southeast Asia, you're not allowed to bring the durian fruit onto the airplane because it's so stinky. And in Europe, I think there are some it, yeah, there's some flights where you're not allowed to bring particularly uh, smelly cheeses uh, aboard. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of ways we can violate each other. So true. Another triumph of policy, though. That is another shot, uh, another instance of policy being a leader to yeah. help all of us. There now, you go. Yeah. May I also may I add a, a one little bit to that, too, because I've had a similar experience on a New York City bus. Ugh. With a person who had a little oh. pop top of tuna that she ate with her hands oh, and, no! then left it, and then left it on the seat of the bus and just like as if the way that a coroner might cover a body just <laughs> draped the daily news over it, which is what I was in awe. Like initially I was I was scandalized because uh, I was like, this person's eating cat food. And then I was like, no, no, it's just tuna fish. It kind of smells like cat food, but it's not the same thing. Pretty close. But it was the the concealment at the end of it was, uh, yeah. it was a real flourish. It was one perfect, of those moments. Well, you know, she had standards and it's really nice to see that on public transportation, that kind of self-discipline and public spiritedness. Yeah. Yeah. That, like the standards are not, it's not, I won't eat fish with my no. hands on the bus. Right. It's, but Don't tell anybody how I live when yeah. I'm done. <laughs> That's the concealment. <laughs> Any really with her hands is real. Like, um, it must have been Casey DeSantis uh, visiting New York. Yeah. We yep, are that. going to wrap the show up. Before we do, uh, I just want to plug John's books because the nonfiction ones are The Golden Spruce, The Tiger, and Fireweather. I've read them all. I Honestly, John, I think Ti The Tiger is probably the best nonfiction book that I've ever read. I really 
genuinely loved it. And I love the others as well. The novels of Jaguars, Children, and Firewood is available at bookstores right now. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before I do the credits? Um, I just want to thank you, fellas, for your time and interest. And this was a really enjoyable hour. And I'm really yeah. glad to be included. So, Dude, it, I trust us. Us. the honor was all ours. Oh, I, it's all on this side of the table. Absolutely. Yeah. No, because I was like, <laughs> I was like, holy shit, we got John Valiant for the podcast. Oh my God. And we were like, ah. Yeah, that was, you're, I will take you behind the game here that this was good enough a get for us that Drew, like, that didn't take me aside, but was like, hey, like, be normal. Don't fuck this up for everybody. <laughs> so, Which is fine, because that's what everyone asked me to do. And then I'm like, hey, remember this tennis player you don't know? <laughs> Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor. And our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com. Or even call us at 909 726 3720 and leave a fiery message. That's 909 Panera Zero. We will see you next week, or more accurately, I will see you next week. We have another author lined up next week. Uh, it's going to be Paul Kicks, and he will join me alone, and we will talk about the civil rights movement. But for now, thank you, John Valiant, for coming on and talking about climate change with Roth and I. That was great. Yeah, thanks, man. Right on. Really a pleasure to meet you guys, and uh, there's probably some editing on my end that uh, you guys could do fruitfully. I, you know, wandered wow, that's a, there, but uh, that's a, that's a Brandon Grugel problem. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Thanks, man. Thanks Bye. a lot.